Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. So, in Hong Kong, you can use an octopus card to use public transport. It's just a contactless payment method. I mean, if you've ever used a metro card in any major city, you know how it works. It's kind of nice going cashless. The idea that I can just move through the world with a certain amount of money in my bank account, which I can then use to pay for goods and services without needing some pieces of paper as an intermediary, it's just convenient. It's also slightly comforting to me to have some automatic log of all the things I paid for. As my dad once told me, keep your receipts. You never know when you might need one as an alibi. Then again... Another guy once said this thing that got me thinking. A cashless society is a surveillance economy. That guy's name is Jerry Brito. He's the executive director at a nonprofit called Coin Center that's concerned with policy issues facing cryptocurrencies. And I'd be tempted to dismiss that thought as an alarmist view that puts us closer to a big brother society than we truly are, except that would be a rather Western-centric view. Because as we heard from numerous sources over the past eight episodes, it's not easy to track cryptocurrencies. But it's a damn sight easier than tracking cash. That's the same conclusion that Hong Kong residents reached when they were protesting a 2019 extradition bill. During the protests, the lines to buy single-ride train tickets were much longer than usual. The reason? Protesting Hong Kongers didn't want to be placed at the scene of the protest, so they wanted to pay cash to buy a train ticket home instead of using their octopus cards. Over and over again in this series, we've bumped up against a rather fundamental policy tension. Broadly speaking, better surveillance capabilities means easier monitoring of the cybercriminals who've built their career out of being digitally savvy. But the argument that you won't mind being tracked if you've done nothing wrong simply doesn't hold water to most reasonable individuals. Because wrong is an incredibly subjective term. That's a very complex world of the cyber criminals engaging in illicit activity, these non-government actors doing foreign intelligence. Blanket surveilling financial transactions. How do you actually investigate crypto? International law. Ransomware operators laundered money. Privacy and anonymity are not bad. Funds transfers. We've observed more and more threat actors because, well, drugs. We wouldn't blanket surveil other aspects of people's lives. The major players behind the darknet markets. The word privacy is not mentioned in the Constitution. But the U.S. Supreme Court has said that several of its amendments create this right. Today, I'm talking to Marta Belcher, special counsel with the Electronic Frontier Foundation and a civil liberties and cryptocurrency attorney. She's on the board of Zcash, one of the privacy coins we mentioned in a previous episode. Marta and I are going to sit down and tackle this tension between protecting user privacy and monitoring cybercriminal activity head on. This is Politico Tech. I'm your host, Moha Chatterjee. Let's do this. What I think is important is understanding that the ability to make financial transactions anonymously 
does not mean that all financial transactions that are anonymous are actually being used on the dark web or being used for crime. And I think one of the things that is really difficult at this moment in time is that there's this idea that anonymity is bad and that the tools that enhance privacy enable crime and that if you have the ability to transact anonymously, that that automatically means that the people who are transacting anonymously are doing that illegally on the quote-unquote dark web. But in fact, privacy and anonymity are not bad or illegal. They're actually completely essential for civil liberties. And that's especially true um, for financial transactions. I think there's actually a fundamental misunderstanding of a lot of cryptocurrencies, um, which is that I think a lot of people believe that all cryptocurrencies are anonymous. Um, But in reality, a lot of cryptocurrencies actually aren't anonymous. They're actually pseudonymous. If anything, it's a lot worse than um, many other methods of transacting from an anonymity perspective. Because just to give you one example, Bitcoin, right, which is the first and largest cryptocurrency, is not anonymous. It's actually pseudonymous. And so what happens is there is a ledger that permanently and publicly records all transactions. And those transactions include the public key of the people making the transactions, which is sort of like almost like a username. And so it's actually really not a great way to commit crimes because it actually creates a trail. Um, And you have all sorts of organizations, like one example is Chainalysis, that actually can track that and make it much easier for law enforcement to actually crack down on illegal transactions. Just to give you one example, last year there was the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack law enforcement was actually able to track down the Bitcoin that had been paid in ransom and get it back within just a number of days because it turns out that this is not a great technology to use uh, to commit crimes because Bitcoin is not in fact anonymous. It's actually pseudonymous and all of these transactions get recorded on a public ledger. When you have two people using Bitcoin wallets to transfer a sum of crypto, all of those transactions are ledgerized. And there are a lot of even traditional investigative methods, right, that we've at this point double clicked on, double clicked on (laughs) (laughs) in other podcast episodes, because we talk about stuff like phone toll analysis and putting bodies like DEA agents on specific uh, suspected actors is not the worst way of connecting like human hands to illegal cash. But that's also where coins like Monero step in. I'm just kind of curious, does Monero count as a pseudo-anonymous coin? Some cryptocurrencies do in fact enable anonymous transactions. And the idea with these privacy coins is that you can still have the cryptographic proof of the transactions without having a public ledger of all of the transactions. So in addition to there being cryptocurrencies that are pseudonymous, there are also cryptocurrencies that are privacy coins that do enable more private transactions. When I first found out about darknet marketplaces, there was this like moment of, huh, that's really cool. 
like that there exists a portion of the internet I haven't seen that sort of seems like the Wild West. And maybe this is my, you know, raised in the Arab Spring days, but I see a lot of value in an unmonitored space on the internet. So I guess what I'm trying to do is inviting you, Marta, to talk to me about why anonymity is important on the internet, why you personally find it to be something worth protecting. The first is, I remember that there were pictures from the Hong Kong protests that were showing super long lines at subway stations because the pro-democracy protesters were waiting to purchase their tickets with cash so that their electronic purchases wouldn't place them at the scene of the protest. So for me, this really underscores that a cashless society is a surveillance society and shows the importance of the ability to transact anonymously. Um, And it shows why cryptocurrency is important for civil liberties precisely because it imports the anonymity of cash into the online world. Fundamentally, this ability to import anonymity into the online world of cryptocurrency is a feature and not a bug. The second is, I think, with the recent Dobbs decision in the Supreme Court, I think it's a little easier to understand why it might be the case that having the ability to transact anonymously is protective of civil liberties. Um, So I think we are now at a moment in time where you can think about what it might mean to be someone in a state where abortion is illegal, where you need an abortion and would need to transact anonymously in order to do that. I think that it's actually a moment in time where it's unfortunately becoming a little bit easier to understand Mm -hmm. why it's important for civil liberties to be able to transact anonymously. So there's this other access to privacy on the internet. You touch upon a very big one, which is the ability to transact anonymously. But there's also the ability to communicate with others on the internet, whether that's for women trying to figure out a safe way to find an abortion in a state where it's legal, or whether it's members of cyber criminal organizations far flung across the globe coordinating to create a ransomware attack. I'm just sort of pulling, honestly, real life examples. But they're both communication exchanges that would benefit from having an unmonitored space or a forum on the internet. How should policymakers balance that? So just to be super clear, (laughs) my point here is certainly not that we should protect criminals or that crime is good, (laughs) right? That is certainly not my point. I think fundamentally, if we had cameras that followed everyone around, hypothetically, all day, every day, and automatically sent all of those videos to the government, we would catch criminals much more often than we catch criminals now. That is for sure. Fundamentally, there's this trade-off between civil liberties and law enforcement. So fundamentally, the way that we balance that in the United States is the Fourth Amendment. So under the Fourth Amendment in the United States, law enforcement has to obtain a warrant that's supported by probable cause before conducting a search or seizure. That is fundamentally how the constitutional balances the interests of law enforcement with civil liberties. And one of the things that has happened over the course of the last 50 years, but especially recently, is that there is this larger trend of the U.S. government really blanket 
surveilling financial transactions in a way that we wouldn't necessarily blanket surveil other aspects of people's lives. So we've sort of come to accept it as the default and as acceptable that our financial transactions through the traditional banking system get handed over to the government by default en masse. And we just think that that's normal. And what's happening right now is we're seeing this larger trend of the U.S. government actually taking that financial surveillance of the traditional banking system and extending it into the cryptocurrency space. We're starting to see more and more this idea that transactions that go through any financial intermediary get turned over to the government by default without a warrant. And so fundamentally, the problem here is that we do have this Fourth Amendment right where law enforcement is supposed to have to go obtain a warrant supported by probable cause before getting information about you. But in fact, what happens in the financial system is that these transactions get turned over to the government by default by financial intermediaries, which I think is illegal and unconstitutional mass surveillance. Are you talking about CTRs, currency transaction reports? So I'm talking about the surveillance that happens under a variety of laws, but a big one is the Bank Secrecy Act. The Bank Secrecy Act, passed in 1970, requires financial institutions to help the federal government with identifying and preventing money laundering. The act sets record-keeping and reporting requirements that every domestic bank needs to follow. It's also known as the Currency and Foreign Transactions Reporting Act. Cryptocurrency and crypto exchanges now fall under the Act's umbrella. So the idea that when you make financial transactions with banks, they're turning over information about those transactions to the government by default without the government even needing to ask for it. I remember one of the indictments that came out of Operation, what was it, Dark Huntor? One of those things that end with Tor. But in any case, uh, they caught a major dark web cocaine dealer because they made a currency transaction or a Bitcoin transaction on an exchange that was of a value greater than $10,000 USD. And that currency transaction report allowed agents from the DEA to get their hand on Bitcoin wallet keys. And that sort of set up the basis for the rest of the investigation. Like point is, these sort of automatic currency transaction reports, bank statements. This documentation is actively used by law enforcement officials to target illicit traders. I see your point about the surveillance state because I don't want the government to know every time I spend above a certain amount. Maybe I'm buying 15 pinatas and that's my secret hobby. But as a voter, as a policymaker, I really struggle to figure out where the balance lies. Well, the balance lies in getting a warrant. The question is, does law enforcement need to have probable cause in order to obtain a warrant for a specific transaction about a specific individual or, frankly, all transactions about a specific individual? Does law enforcement need to have some probable cause and do a targeted search for some individual, which would be, in my view, the constitutional way of doing things under the Fourth Amendment? Or do these transactions get turned over to the government by default not just for criminals, but for every American. And so in my view, having these transactions get turned over to the government without a warrant ought to be unconstitutional. But in fact, 
that is what happens every day. And the reason for that, just to put a point on it, is that there's this thing called the third party doctrine, which is the idea that people don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the data that they share with a third party, like a bank. So if there's a third party that sees your transaction history, or if you're using some third party like Facebook or email, the idea is you no longer have reasonable expectation of privacy in that information. And therefore, it can all get turned over to the government by default without a warrant. So that's how this happens outside of what is contemplated in the Fourth Amendment. What Marta wants is theoretically simple. She's saying law enforcement should get a warrant if they want to monitor currency transactions. That, by default, these transaction records should remain private and entities shouldn't need to turn them over to the government without a good reason. In reality, it's not so easy to achieve that utopian vision. And it's certainly not simple to cut through the Gordian knot of regulations that already proliferates the space. We don't have laws that apply to a particular technology. What we have is laws that are about activities, that are not about specific technologies. So just to give you one example, if someone's committing fraud, it doesn't matter whether they're committing fraud using cryptocurrency or the telephone or email or Signal or Tor or a pen and paper, or seashells, right? Actions can be taken by a variety of law enforcement, but also private causes of action. And also there can be actions taken by an alphabet soup, the CFPB, the FTC, the CFTC, the SEC, right? State attorneys general and private causes of action, right? So the point is when there's a particular activity, that is the thing that laws are targeted at. Existing laws and regulations are already applied very sensibly to the cryptocurrency space. And there are many, many, many laws and regulations that apply to cryptocurrency. In fact, I actually think that that is one of the biggest myths about cryptocurrency, is I think that people believe that cryptocurrency is unregulated. And that is absolutely not true. It is actually wild how much regulation there is in the cryptocurrency space. So the on-ramps and the off-ramps where people are buying or selling or custodying cryptocurrency are really heavily regulated entities. So these are chartered banks or trust companies or state licensed money transmitters, and they have minimum capital requirements, and they have to post bonds, and they open their doors to yearly examinations, and they're financial institutions under the Bank Secrecy Act, and they register with FinCEN. It seems like there's a gap between all of the documentation that's generated around a cryptocurrency transaction and connecting that to actual people. On the dark web, one of the primary sort of keywords is anonymity. The idea that you have people who, you know, have online handles who, for better or worse, they seek to preserve their anonymity. And there are thousands upon thousands of such folks. And so the sort of operational issue with a lot of dark web cybercrime enforcement is that the people get away. How does one connect cryptocurrency transactions made with privacy coins to the human beings that make those transactions without additional lawmaking or regulation? On-ramps and off-ramps where you buy and sell and custody cryptocurrency are heavily regulated entities. So these are like exchanges, just as one example. And these entities are collecting KYC checks, know your customer checks, right? They are collecting 
very detailed information about customers. And they are connecting that information with the financial transactions that they do using cryptocurrency, which again are available on a public ledger. So what happens all the time is that people will use Bitcoin, for example, for some illegal transaction and the government will go to an exchange and say, who is the person who did this transaction? So that happens all the time. The idea, I think that in the question that you have is, should it always be the case that with every transaction, there should be a way to connect the transaction with the individual? Right. Like to give a concrete example, when Hydra, the darknet platform that we're sort of springboarding off of, when that was taken down, that was about 19,000 active vendors. And very, very few of them were were ever caught. And most of these folks, they're small-time narcotics dealers. It's not necessarily what they were selling. It's the operational scale of trying to, like, catch 19,000 people's worth of transactions. Like, most folks will never see a law enforcement official show up to their door. So it's one of those things where I'm like, it sounds like we have a lot of regulation. It also sounds incredibly confusing. It also kind of sounds like none of that actually helps with law enforcement and strategy. So that confusion is what was fueling the question. I think the question comes down to, should we be able to have anonymous transactions, right? Should we be able to have truly anonymous transactions? Because if what you're saying is, we need to be able to connect individuals to transactions. That is a pretty bold statement. And in my view, is something that is really problematic from the perspective of civil liberties. I think it's absolutely essential for civil liberties that people are able to have anonymous transactions. I think the idea that cryptocurrency facilitates crime is really wrong. And I think that this is exactly the line of reasoning that we hear for example, from critics of end-to-end encryption and from critics of Tor. But the fact that a technology could be used to violate the law doesn't mean that there's something wrong with that technology. Criminals have long used cash to commit crimes forever, but we don't call for a ban on cash. We accept that people can make anonymous transactions using cash. And similarly, we don't blame Ford when one of its cars is used as a getaway vehicle in a bank robbery. Like the fundamental question that you're asking is, should we be able to make anonymous transactions or should we always have to connect transactions to individuals? And my view is absolutely we should be able to have anonymous transactions. In fact, we've always had the ability to do anonymous transactions using cash. And I think fundamentally, when you think about any technology, any given criminal is using 150 different technologies, like from you know, something as fundamental as the internet to messaging apps. And so I think fundamentally the idea that in order to catch criminals, we need to de-anonymize everything that a criminal is doing, including their financial transactions, including their messages, whatever it is, I think is really problematic. So I have spent a good amount of time on darknet marketplaces, just sort of trying to figure out how they work. Long story short, it kind of sounds like the way most of these platforms, which also kind of function as communication and transaction platforms, right? Because a lot of these platforms operate in escrow, like they hold the currency while the trade is going through. Like the point is, these platforms occupy a lot of roles. The two major ones are kind of to record a transaction for an illegal good and also 
communication surrounding planning, you know, buying an illegal good. And sometimes it's not, you don't even have the sale happen on platform. People just connect. You go, okay, this is a trusted vendor of a thing. I'll chat with them for a little bit and then we'll take our conversation elsewhere. Like there are a lot of ways this works. And the reason I bring it up is operationally, it sounds like the way they get around monitoring is just to have ridiculously hard CAPTCHAs, have just onion links accessible, have sort of like a peer-to-peer like validation of, yes, this is a person with an online handle that we can trust. So they have PGP keys for protecting communication. Like essentially PGP, Monero, CAPTCHAs. These are the three main ways that darknet platforms ensure operational security. Each of these are also individually important just generally to like have secure messaging even if you're not doing shady illegal things. And so that's three I want to quickly focus on. Do you think there's ever going to be a time where we're able to like get one step ahead of specifically illicit platforms while still preserving enough ground for people to leverage privacy for civil liberties purposes? I think there's this idea that just because a technology can be used to violate the law doesn't mean that there's something wrong with that technology. And this is a huge theme of all of technological advancement. This is not a new issue. And let me just give you an example. In the 1980s, studios actually tried to make VCRs illegal because VCRs could be used for copyright infringement. And they actually almost succeeded in making VCRs illegal. Ironically, VCRs are ultimately the thing that kind of saved that industry, right? In that they then were able to actually sell videos. But this is not a new issue. New technologies come along and someone says, well, wait a second, this technology can be used to violate the law. The reason that that's always something that comes up is any technology can be used to violate the law. Like I used the example earlier of cars being used to violate the law as getaway vehicles and the internet being used to violate the law because it's a communications platform and all communications platforms being used to violate the law, right? So fundamentally, I think it's the wrong framing to think of it as, well, this technology could be used to violate the law. All technologies can be used to violate the law. And we shouldn't be trying to stop crime by cracking down on those technologies. We should try to stop crime by trying to stop crime. In the finale of our limited run series, I'll be talking to someone who interacts with members of some of the world's most notorious ransomware and cyber criminal gangs on a semi-regular basis. When I told you I'd be taking you behind the scenes of the darkest parts of the internet, I wasn't kidding. We'll be tying together insights from the series thus far, getting the raw details on how the Russia-Ukraine war affected the day-to-day operations of malware developers, and taking a sober look at what the darknet holds for our future. Stay tuned. Until next time, I'm Mohar Chatterjee. Thanks for listening.